to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, broadcasting live from the Metro Goldline in a not-so-sunny Los Angeles. And uh, uh, before I before I uh, pass through an area with no service and drop off this stall, let me quickly introduce my other co-hosts, Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien Maven. And I believe our topic today is dwarves. Yay! That's dwarves, right, dwarves, dwarves. dwarves. That's right. We are meeting the dwarves today. Thank you, Dave. Dave, uh, attending with us today under difficult circumstances, live from a train there. So, uh, in motion. Look that's at the, right. Look at that that dedication. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Great, glad you could join us today. So, uh, the f- uh, first thing I wanted to announce quickly before we uh, uh, before we begin, because I wanted to make sure that I uh, um, that I don't forget, um, we have a, a bit of a scheduling issue. Um, I think uh, neither Trish nor I are going to be available two weeks from today, which would be the seventeenth, which would be our next regularly scheduled session. Um, and we can't so push that it. Means it's going to be all Dave, only Dave. Well, <laughs> yeah, we we could do that. Uh, well, I was thinking, and so normally we'd push it back the, to the following week and do a three-week gap instead of a two-week gap, but that is Black Friday. as a day after Thanksgiving, so that's not going to work too well either. Um, so I think what we're going to need to do is actually push it forward a week, so that is to have our next session episode, uh, well, to, to talk, plan to talk about episode five uh, in one week from today uh, on the on the 10th. Uh, does uh, assuming that Dave, hopefully Dave can make that because I'll still be flying. Yeah, I'll be in the air. Yeah, I know you're not going to be able to make either either one of those. So, um, right. But anyway, so I just wanted to I just wanted to 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 note that I think that that's what's going to it's either that or just take you know skip an entire session and uh, not meet again until December. But that seems sad. So uh, we will. Uh, <laughs> We'll plan to we'll plan to meet next week instead. Um, all right. Uh, uh, so so yeah. So we'll we'll plan on next week uh, the tenth, and then the following the following one will be the first of December. After that, so we'll have our sort of Thanksgiving break uh, after that. Um, good. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into today's episode uh quickly because we have uh we have a lot of groundwork to do talking about dwarves we're introducing a whole new you know remember the, all the work that we did at the beginning of season two when we were talking about how do we depict the elves and the different uh you know the different uh, uh kin you know kindreds of the elves and everything and how do we differentiate them and then we you know we we, we were you know talking about this a similar thing even with the the valar of course at the beginning of of season one. Well, now we have a, a similar thing. It's, well, I was going to say smaller scale, but that might seem like a short joke at the expense of the dwarves. But anyway, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not quite as big a deal uh, as deciding about the, the distinction among the different kindreds of the elves, but it's still a major thing, right? We're talking about the dwarves and the, uh, uh, and, and we need to introduce the dwarves of Belagost and of Nogrod. So, um, let's uh let's let's move right towards that but actually what i want I, I, 
here's my fear. My fear is that we'll get so involved in talking about dwarves that we will forget uh, to go over the sort of other plot elements of the of the episode. So I want to start with a few of those other things uh, that we can kind of get out of the way. Well, not that we're just trying to get them out of the way, but so that we can talk about them first and then allow ourselves to indulge in a dwarf discussion uh, for... Uh, uh, for a while after that. So uh, here are the non-dwarf items uh, from this episode, from episode four. First, the ale story. So we had talked about pushing back the ale conflict. Uh, we'd, that we, we discussed the possibility of the ale conflict uh, in the last episode, and we decided to push it back to this episode because ale's relationship with the dwarves is really important, so we wanted to involve ale. So let's talk about ale for a second, then we'll talk about uh, Sauron. What's going on? You know, see the uh, the the bad guys interlude, uh, which we had planned to be meeting with Shelob, which will be fun. So let, well, let's talk about those two things. And we do have the reminder that uh, Meme and the Petty Dwarves and all that stuff is going to be in the next episode because the next episode is the building of Menegroth episode. So. Um, uh, a good reminder that that's not going to be involved here uh, in this episode. So let's talk about Ale. So, okay, the main issue with Ale, the, 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 the primary textual... There, there are two things from the story of Ale, uh, as told in the Silmarillion, that we need to deal with or set up. The first is his acquisition of Nan Elmoth. So Nan Elmoth is that little section of, just to actually go back here for a second, here's, because we, since we have the map here, this is Nan Elmoth right here, this little, this little separate forest over here. Um, and you may remember that Nan Elmoth is where Thingol met Melian, so it's, uh, you know, of some significance, but it's also outside of Doriath proper, right? So once they, uh, once Thingol and Melian kind of consolidate <clears throat> there in Doriath, Nan Elmoth is, uh, is sort of on the fringes. So Aeol wants it. Now we're told uh, in the Silmarillion that he is forced, uh, Aeol has to pay uh, and what his what what the fee is uh, is one of the swords. So rem- you may remember that Anglachel, the sword which Beleg takes uh, uh, to his eventual uh, chagrin, and um, uh, which of course Turin uses and and makes famous, the sword with which Turin has his last conversation uh, before his death. Um, that is one of the two swords uh, uh, that. Uh, uh, um, Aeol made. Um, and uh, so the one Aeol keeps uh, until Maeglin steals it from him, and Maeglin is using that sword. So we'll have Maeglin with the black sword, uh, which is the mate of Anglakel, and he's going to be using that in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, and he's going to be fighting Tuor with that uh, on the walls of Gondolin and all that kind of thing. But the the other one is Anglakel. So he, he Aeol makes the sword, and he gives it to Thingol as a fee for the privilege of living in Nan Elmoth. So that's the story that we know happened now. So that's the story that we want to kind of flesh out. How does that go down, right? How does the... Because uh, the, there's going to be some conflict <clears throat> because it's Aeol, right? And he's uh, the Dark Elf and a bit of a problem. So, you know, what is his relationship with Thingol going to be? We know he's rather independent. Um, he is very famous for his very outspoken opinions about the Noldor, right? 
So what exactly is his relationship with Thingol? How does that go? Um, we know that we're told that he grudged the fee that he had to pay to Thingol. So we know that his relationship with Thingol isn't entirely friendly, right? So anyway, so the making of the sword, the paying of that in fee to Thingol uh, for his right to live in Nan Elmoth. We know that that's one thing. The second thing is his friendship with the dwarves. And this, of course, is what makes... Uh, uh, this is about the right time frame anyway for him to be setting himself up in Nan Elmoth. And, of course, his relationship with the dwarves makes it especially... Uh, um, sort of appropriate or it's particularly suggestive right to uh, uh, to bring him into this episode uh, because he is of all of the elves of Beleriand he is the one who is most closely uh, united in friendship uh, and partnership with the dwarves often travels to the dwarf uh, 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 cities you know to Nograd and Belagost and studies with the smiths there um so, yeah. Now, um, Mariel asks a really great question. Did we decide where Aeol learned swordcraft? Um, or do we want to leave that mysterious? Yeah, uh, well, exactly, right? Um, this actually leads me to a more general question. What do we want to do with swordcraft among the elves of Beleriand in general? Because remember, it's kind of a big deal when the Noldor begin to make swords in, um, you know, when they begin to make swords and armor in Valinor. Um, and nobody else is doing that. Remember, this is one of the issues with the Kinslaying, you know, that the Teleri don't have armor or, uh, or web, they have bows, but they don't have any swords. Um, and that's the thing about a sword, right? A, a sword is, is, symbolically speaking, even functionally speaking, a really significant thing, right? Because a sword is re- its only purpose. The only function of a sword uh, is to kill folks. I mean, like spears and bows and like those can have other uses, right? Which don't have to do with warfare. A sword is just an instrument of war. Uh, there's, there's really very little else practical that you can do with a sword. So it's a big deal when you start making swords, uh, and when, especially if you're living in Valinor and you start making swords. So again, the Noldor making swords was a big deal. Why do they start making swords over here? Especially since we only just met the the orcs in the last episode, right? And until the orcs come in, the elves, you know, the, the Sindar aren't making war. Well, they're not at war with anybody, right? So why would they make warlike weapons? Um, I can't imagine that they would. Right now, they'd be hunting, so they would be. They would, you know, Beleg would already have his bow, and I would think that Mablung would probably fight with a spear. Um, I kind of, uh, I, I would kind of see at the beginning Mablung and Beleg being kind of like the, um, you know, uh, uh, Beleg is the, you know, the the bow fighter. I will, I will shoot him from a distance, and Mablung is like the, I will stand with the spear in the path of the boar kind of hunter. Um, or, uh, you know, I will ride them down from horseback and like cast a spear at them from horseback kind of, you know, that would be the thing that, that, that Mablung of heavy hand would, would be about. Um, but they wouldn't have swords. There's no way that they would have swords and they certainly wouldn't have armor. Right. Therefore it does seem, most likely, Tony, just as you were suggesting, that the dwarves would be the ones involved in this, right? That they would first get 
uh, armor especially, but even swords, would first come from the dwarves. Because the dwarves, they already make war, right? They're already a warlike people. They don't need the orcs. They've been at war amongst themselves. Remember that, that, that the dwarves not infrequently uh, uh, make war even among their own folk. Like, they, you know, the dwarf-on-dwarf dwarf, you know, clan wars and stuff happen. Um, so I think that we can s- indicate that that kind of thing is in the somewhere in the history of the dwarves, that there have already been uh, skirmishes among the dwarves, that they have armed themselves. Because you can see uh, two different motivations for it, right? On the one hand, they're smiths, and so they just really like making stuff. So they don't need much excuse to make armor and weapons because it's the kind of thing that they love doing anyway. But they already have... They have enough excuse to suggest the idea. Um, but they don't... Uh, um, but they don't. Uh, so even if they haven't used it all that much, they they would just kind of run with it, right? Um, so I, I think armor and swords have to be imported from the dwarves. Which so we, we therefore have two choices with ale. Either we have ale learn sword uh, swordsmithing from the dwarves, or we just have him come up with it on his own. Essentially, you know, have. Uh, have the fact that he's over there living by himself, making weapons of warfare for himself, um, you know, that that's just kind of one of the ways that shows that he's a little odd, right? You know, that makes him, that makes him a dark elf. Um, what do you guys think about that? Do you want to, there's a chronology issue, right? Or rather we get into some chronology issues, I think, if he has to learn, uh, swordcraft from the dwarves. We 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 would have to make him appear to learn fairly quickly, given the time frame that we're operating under here in season three. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say. I mean, we do have like long stretches of time we can play with, right? But maybe not in the context of this uh, this episode. Yeah, and we do have some stretches of time. Yeah, exactly. But it is it is it's not vast stretches. It's not like you know, centuries. Right. It's, it's, you right. know, months, maybe even a couple of years, but not, not, not centuries. Um, the other thing is how do, I mean, how do we show it? it? I mean, do we show it in the same show as when he's making the sword for single, or is this something we should have had set up or I don't know, you know, cause it's like, I, I the only other way, the only way I can think to do it in this episode is to do a really cheesy voiceover. Right. You know, he had met the dwarves. Right. Yeah, exactly. That would, that would be super awkward, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to get into exposition on that kind of level. No, no, no. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it's implied in, in the way he interacts with the dwarves, you know, that there's obviously a relationship there. In other words, we just don't go into it a whole lot. But I mean, it's somehow that we imply through his interactions with the dwarves is this is where he learned the smithing or whatever we call it, metal smithing. It, maybe we could do it elegantly and subtly and not get really overt. Right. But right. I do think you're right. I think it is, I think it makes sense that it would be through the dwarves that he would have that skill. Yeah. He would have acquired that skill. Yeah. Um, maybe we or just have uh, to is the concern that um, in in this episode we're doing this is supposed to be sort of the first interact we're going to do the first interaction 
yes. of the of the elves and the dwarves, and so we're concerned that if uh, that if we do the dwarves teaching a all that it has to be like a montage, <laughs> right? That's ex- montage. exactly. <laughs> that's that's precisely my fear. If he's going to be able yeah. to present Unglockheld to to Thingol anytime soon, yeah, we're going to have yeah. to get a training montage for a all, which <laughs> I mean, seems frankly use, awkward. Uh, we're gonna do it. Can we use, you know, that song from Karate Kid? Best <laughs> <laughs> we have to do the chop wood carry water scene, right? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Aeol has already met the dwarves. Yes. Anybody else did. Yeah, that is an interesting idea. David Atley was just suggesting that in the chat as well. I think that's a really yeah. interesting idea that um, that it turns out that he already has now. But but the question right. is, how do we do that? Do we show? Um, Okay, here's a kind of cheesy, suspenseful way we could do it. We could show, we could start the episode showing Aeol on a journey, right? And he goes to a dark place to have a secret meeting uh, with somebody who looks sketchy, so that we lead the re- the viewers into wondering whether he is going to betray Thingol to Sauron or to Morgoth, right? Um, you know, make it look like he's going to meet with the bad guys, and then have it later turn out that it was actually the dwarves that he had met with, and and it was like totally not sketchy, but it still puts a sort of a pall of doubt a- a- around. Aeol, right, and and sort of prompts people to look at him as uh, uh, as sort of dubious and uncertain. Um, and the as, other thing, you know, I mean, could, we could have Thingol, couldn't we ask him, like, where did you, I mean, how do you know how to make swords? And Aeol kind of looks at him like, I have my ways. I have hidden knowledge. I mean, you know, be kind of like weirdly and sinister, mysterious kind yeah. of, I don't know. Well, and I would think the Maybe dwarves might... The dwarves might refer to it. I mean, you have to imagine that the dwarves would think that he was more important than Thingol would think he was, right? You know, the dwarves would speak of him as if he were, you know, a great one among the elves. And, uh, you know, Thingol would be like, uh, what? You know, so... um, yeah, yeah, and Mike was just suggesting, and I think this was suggested on the boards as well, that um, when they come across the dwarves, they find they already speak Sindarin or, or you know, or, or begin to speak Sindarin. You know, they're already kind of familiar with the elves' language, which is becomes, you know, a sort of a mystery in itself. How did they learn it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Hakan, it does create if Aeol has a pre-existing relationship with the dwarves that predates the dwarves meeting with Thingol and the sort of alliance with Thingol, it would seem to give Aeol an, a really interesting bargaining position, right? So, you know, he says give me Nan Elmoth and, and Thingol says uh, you know, heck no, that, that place has sentimental value, you know, I'm not giving it to you. And Aeol can you know, <laughs> sorry, all of a sudden I'm remembering Gollum being like, you know, uh, Gollum has uh, has friends now. We'll see if he stands for uh, for 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 being kicked around. You know, um, uh, you know, he has fine new friends. Um, so like Aeol would actually try to use his friendship with the dwarves as leverage against Fingal. 
My problem is, how would that not work? <laughs> Especially if Thingol is trying to establish good relations with the dwarves, and the dwarves already have good relations with Aeol. You've got to think, like, we got to be a little bit careful there, or it does give Aeol too much leverage, right? I mean, it makes, uh, I mean, Aeol could pretty easily, probably, you would think, scupper the uh, relationship between the Thingol and the, and the dwarves if he chose to. Uh, so, hmm. Do you see what I mean? I, I'm I'm worried that that this ploy yeah. actually is going to work. Hmm. Yeah. Now Zach asks a really good question. Does do we have Ao make the introductions? Like, so how do we find out? Uh, do they? So Ao meets the dwarves. Then the dwarves encounter, you know, then Thingol's people encounter encounter uh, uh, the dwarves and want to meet them and get to know them better. Um, so, uh, um, so he, so then they would go to, they, and they find out, because the dwarves speak Cinder, and I like that idea, that the dwarves have already met Aeol. Right, so they go to Ale, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I know the dwarves." Um, would they send Ale then as an ambassador or with the ambassadors? Would they? Would they? Would they try to use Male as a as a go Ale as a go between there? Um, so currently, my personal personal bias currently is, I kind of would rather. I feel like maybe Aeol wouldn't be the kind of person that would be forthcoming about this fact. Right. And I would rather it be, I'd rather it be left kind of as a mystery for the elves. Um, right. To figure out how do the dwarves already know Syndra and who have they met. And then maybe be a slightly less of a mystery for the audience um, so that they can figure out that it was Aeol and have it be something that's left as kind of a, is this an innocuous fact and Aeol is just a shy guy or is this like sinister, the fact that he won't? Right, right. I mean, I agree. Ale's character would be not to be forthcoming about anything, right? So he's not going to just be hanging yes. out with Thingol and mention it. Um, they would have to go after him. Wouldn't. Yeah, and he wouldn't volunteer like, "Oh, hey, would you like me to make an introduction?" <laughs> right. I don't think he would view the dwarves as a, as you know, like as sort of something he'd want to keep to himself. Yes. Yes, because um, he knows how he's profiting from that relationship, and and wouldn't yeah right. he he wouldn't be keen on sharing. So, so so I, so it may it may ultimately be that like in terms of story mechanics, it makes more sense for someone to figure out that it's him, and right? For them to kind of coerce coerce him into doing it, and that would be certainly that would be consistent with his story arc of like him always being imposed on by these you know at least from his point of view always right. being forced to do things he doesn't want to do. Um, but I, there's part of me that likes the idea of it being a secret so that the audience looks and thinks that there's something sinister going on with them. Right. Cause I mean, they're kind of, I mean, there isn't in the sense that he's, he's not actually conspiring against Thingol. He's not actually doing anything wicked, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally comfortable with training our audience to be like uneasy about Aeol. Right. In fact, yeah. That's kind of the cool thing about Aeol, isn't it? I mean, he's really creepy, but he doesn't do... Like, until the very end, he doesn't really do anything wrong. He's just creepy and solitary. 
right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not like he actually betrays anybody. I mean, you know, Mygwen does really bad things. Aeol, I mean, again, at the very end when he when he's trying to kill Aeol, that's bad. And obviously, what he do what he does with Arathel isn't great. But I mean, when I say he doesn't do anything bad, I mean it's it's not like he allies himself with Morgoth or something like that. You know, I mean, it. it uh, he's just creepy. You know. Uh, yeah. Um, so I like that. I like that idea. I like the idea that he is um, um, he's being made into a, a sort of a dark figure um, without actually having to give him many uh, uh, you know evil actions necessarily. Also, um, it's going to be interesting because we're going to be able to see a lot of his father in Mygelin later on. Yes. You know, a lot of the motivations and why he would act the way he acted will will recall Aeol. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so lots of implications about that he's, you know, uh, uh, you know, unreliable or unpleasant um, without actually, you know, implicating him in anything criminal or actively wicked, I think is a good way to treat right. him at this point. Yeah. Um, but coming back to trying to clarify my problem with the giving him too much leverage thing, um, the problem is how can we? He still has to give Englachel to Thingol. That needs to happen, right? Um, because we have to have that in place so that can be that that's set up for later when Beleg takes it um, during the Turin story. So I know that's several years down the road, but still we need Englachel in, in Thingol's possession. Um, so why would if he has the leverage of like I am the friend of these people you want to be your allies um you know Mike I think you were mentioning that uh uh Mike Hoxstad that um he Aeol gets non-Elmoth and he introduces the, you know he he manages the or you know facilitates the introductions or ends up doing it um and it, but that's the problem. He needs to. He. Why would he still make the sword? Why would he still give one of these? Because Anglachel's a big deal. Um, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a major cost. It's not just any old sword. Um, it's one of two very special swords that he made, um, and he doesn't want to give it up. So. Um. Yeah. Um. So that's why I think the simplest answer here is he doesn't he doesn't volunteer the dwarves and he doesn't facilitate or help with that. Right. Okay. And yeah. um, the reason I like that is that would make then you could make Anglakel sort of the reveal that he must have known them all along. Right. Um, right. Like if um, if uh, he if 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 sort of they think the dwarves are like. And then, um, and then they meet the dwarves. They make an arrangement, and then shortly thereafter, there's this horse trade on Glockhell for the for for his um, nice parcel of pop property. Then that would be sort of a like, wait, how on earth do you, um, how on earth did you know this guy? Like, or how, or how did you learn to make this sword? In which case, you must have known the dwarves. Where did right. you learn this craft? Right. 
Right. Yeah, so he's he's kind of outside the whole dwarf negotiation thing, and it's the sword that gives away the connection. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. And the irony then, I guess, would be, David, as you're implying, had he been more forthcoming from the beginning, he probably could have facilitated the alliance more easily and earlier, and very likely have received Nan Elmoth in gift as a, uh, uh, in, in exchange for that, um, or in appreciation for that. But since he didn't and kept it to himself, he ends up having to pay this fee that he grudges. I don't know that we necessarily need to spell that out explicitly, you know, in exposition, but, you know, uh, creating that position makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So, um, uh, so we can, I kind of like the idea of opening the episode with Aeol, like Aeol traveling and, and, uh, and going and meet and, and smithing things and, uh, doing ominous things, but we don't, we can save the, the dwarves. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Hakan, uh, right. I agree. Hakan is pointing out that after the first battle, so, you know, after the, the orcs come down and attack, um, he's going to want to hide. You know, he's going to want to set up his own little, you know, the the sort of warped, dark version of the of the Girdle of Melian that he sets up in Nan Elmoth. So, he, you know, he wants to conceal himself. So that's when he uh, does the exchange for Nan Elmoth. So it wouldn't even be in this episode that he would be giving up... Uh, uh, on Glockhell, which does prevent us from having to do a training montage as well. So, uh, so that's fine. Um, okay. Uh, okay, good. So what we would do with Aeol in this episode then is establish his connection with the dwarves, but the fact that none of the rest of the elves know that. Um, and that's it. Right, we just do that, and we'd show him being secretive and creepy, um, and that's pretty much Ail's role here because he's not going to be actively involved with the rest of the initial exchange with the elves. It's only going to be later that he's going to claim Nan Elmoth. So that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, um, let's talk about Sauron. So this is the first stage of Sauron. Um, you know, because we, we, we had the orcs, but the orcs are just, you know, the orcs that we encountered in the last episode, it's just a, a few groups of orcs just kind of, they've escaped, right? You know, they, 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 they're just kind of running amok. Um, and they weren't even supposed to be revealed yet. Um, so Sauron, though, is doing his strategizing, and this is where he is, he meets Shelob or goes to find Ungoliant. Um, I really like the idea of Thorin Gwethel being involved here. This seems like exactly the kind of thing that Thorin Gwethel would help with. Um, that is, that um, uh, Thorin Gwethel would help him to locate and communicate with uh, Shelob. I could see her, because he is going to probably... She would be the one who would do the reconnaissance, I would think. She would be the one who would actually locate Shelob. And then Sauron, she would go back and report that to Sauron. And then Sauron would um, uh, would actually go and meet with Shelob to, uh, 
to recruit the assistance of the spiders. Um, which means we need a couple different sequences, right? We need um, we need Sauron and Thorin Gwethel at the beginning, right? Thorin, we need Thorin Gwethel being sent out on the go find the spiders. And I'm thinking that the conversation between Sauron and Thorin Gwethel there would be like, Sauron already foresees that they may need something besides pure military strength, right? Um, and this could give us an opportunity to enable Sauron to say, to make some disparage, some dis- in private, some disparaging comments about what Morgoth has done with the orcs, right? Remember, he's disappointed. They have, they have it's, you know, the, 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 the final version of the orcs is Morgoth's version, the hate and anger filled version, not what Sauron was planning uh, for his necromantic orc project all along. Um, so he can make some sort of slightly disparaging remarks about the orcs and how he thinks they're not going to be sufficient to get the whole job done. and Or at least just in case they're not. And, you know, then Thorin Gwethel can be, well, what about, you know, the your, the wolves? And, and he's like, nah, nah. You know, basically he's going to tell her, I want an ace in the hole, right? Um... So I think that she, therefore, is going to, you know, does she suggest it? Maybe she suggests the spiders. Um, and se- because, you know, again, we want to emphasize Thorin Gwethil's intelligence and her active collaboration. You know, she is uh, the closest thing Sauron has to a, to a, to a partner, you know, to an intellectual equal. Um, the, rest of, uh, the rest of his posse are relatively unreliable and kind of thuggish, but Thorin Gwethil is not. Uh, so maybe she's the one who says, well, you know, if we want a really powerful ally, what about, you know, trying... Uh, how about the one who, uh, uh, you know, almost destroyed Morgoth himself? And Sauron would really like that idea. Um, maybe, maybe there is just a glimmer, just a faint glimmer of Sauron wanting to hedge his own bets, right? That is, Sauron wanting to say, you know, if I could forge an alliance with Ungoliant, that would give me some serious leverage. Right? Again, maybe he's still feeling grumpy about how things have gone down, right, when Melkor came back. Uh, mm-hmm. And he knows, like, Ungoliant, if he can actually work a deal of some kind with Ungoliant it could give him protection even against, not just against Gothmog, right, but even against Melkor himself. You know, there could be just that, not that he's planning revolt, but, uh, you know, he serves Melkor and serves him faithfully, but he's still a bad guy, right? And, uh, and, and... Well, I mean, Morgoth's been uh, captured already once. Yes. And there was all that, you know, palace power struggle while he was gone, so... I mean, Sauron could just, like you said, hedging his bets. It's like it could happen again, and I want to make sure I'm in better position next time if it does happen, right? right. I mean, not necessarily um, unfaithful to Morgoth, but just like let's be realistic. Let's have some insurance. Exactly, and, exactly. And yeah. then, and again, and even just the hint of that, like because he doesn't, especially since Morgoth, Morgoth was different when he came back, right? Morgoth was changed. Right. He's not the Melkor right. that he remembers, um, right. and and that's sort of evidenced right in the uh um uh in the the orc thing i mean one way to think about it 
Remember what we did with Otumno and the difference between Otumno and Angband? Right? How Angband is just like the Iron Fortress, uh, and but Otumno was the fabulous palace, right? Oh, yeah. That's um, like almost a visual uh, representation of the change, isn't it? Yes, and the the fall, the corruption, the decline. You know, not just fall in the sense of turning to evil, but fall in the okay. sense of decline from greatness, right? I mean, Melkor is lesser than he was. Um, right as represented by the fact that he can't shift out of his tyrant's form anymore. You know, Melkor's not able to do the, like, wise and benevolent ruler thing anymore. I mean, he's just, like, tyrant now. Um, And Sauron, I think, would see that and be disappointed and and even, in a sense, um, uh, even, in a sense, untrusting. What I was thinking about Utumno and Angband... um, there would be, I think, an interesting kind of analogy uh, or correspondence. Uh, Sauron's orcs would have been servants that would have fit in Otumno, right? Morgoth's orcs, what he warps them into when he gets back, are only fit for Angband, right? Um, And again, Sauron would see that, and I think he'd be disappointed by that. Um... We, we have to reserve a line for Sauron somewhere down the line, maybe in his Anatar phase, where he says to someone, I am as Morgoth should have been. Right. right. I mean, that is, that's really kind of, if you think about it, I mean, we could actually fashion it that way, that what Sauron does when he takes over is he proceeds the way he thinks Morgoth should have and didn't. Exactly. He's going to do it. He's going to learn from Morgoth's res- mistakes, and he's not going to let right. that happen. And of course, then what we show is the irony that he ends up walking down exactly the same path. You know, as the Silmarillion <laughs> says, you know, I, f- f- you know, that's like right at the the last lines of the Vela Quinta. Yeah. Right. Um, but in after years, he rose like a shadow of Morgoth and a ghost of his malice, and walked behind him on the same ruinous path down into the void. Right. Uh, but he doesn't know it. He thinks he's taking a different path, right? He thinks he's going to correct right. the problem, um, but then, of course, doesn't end up doing that. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes. Um, and Tony Mead points out that this would also parallel what Gandalf says later about Saruman. Uh, yeah, exactly, Tony. We sh- we show Saruman undergoing a similar oh, yeah. kind, of, uh, kind of thing. I mean, that's... Um, Remember, remember back to the music, right? What distinguishes the evil music? Unanimity, right? Unison, like a, 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 a just blaring unison, you know, a, a, a horns braying on the same note, right? Evil is boring. You know, evil follows the same pattern. There's infinite variety among goodness. There is not infinite variety among, you know, among the fallen, among the evil. They, in the end, you know, they may think about things differently. They may set out to do things differently, but in the end, they walk the same path down into the void. They come from different places. It happens in different ways. Um, But at the end of the day, the final state is very, is, is, is very similar. Um, so that irony we can be kind of playing on the, the irony with Sauron there. I mean, I, I really, I, re, I really like that. So yeah. So upon Melkor's return, so th- this first conversation between Sauron and Thorin Gwethel can be a, a really great place where we can show, um, where we can show. Yeah. Uh, as Marie was saying, um, we showed before Sauron respecting Melkor for mainly for his power 
also for his vision, um, uh, but 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 for his power. And yet, Marie, what I'm thinking is the vision that Melkor had of, you know, sort of rule by strength and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of vision that sort of converted uh, Myron over to Melkor's side in season one, that vision, you know, Sauron would be aware of the fact that that vision is already degrading, right? Um, and that Melkor is already lesser than he was, but he still has power, right? Um, and so Sauron still, still respects uh, Morgoth for his power, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, actually great question. Zach asks, asks, asks an excellent question. Have we ever discussed how, uh, you know, the bad guys refer to Morgoth? They're not going to call him Morgoth, of course. Um, they would just call him, they wouldn't use his name at all, right? They would call him the Lord, the Dark Lord, the Great Lord, maybe? Great Lord? The Great One? Uh, something like that. I, I would think they would just have a... Um, and could we um, could we uh, translate that into... I assume it's Black Speech, right? It's Black Speech this early on. Uh, there might be a cool name for it in Black Speech that they would use. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the the great Lord or the dear leader. <laughs> dear, dear leader. <laughs> Benevolent ruler. Uh, the big boss, uh, Phil says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that's how Shagrat and Gorbag would refer to him. Right. Um, uh, Uh, fearless leader. No, I think they would. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking something like the Great One or something like that. Uh, it would be even King. I think would be too parochial. You know, I mean, because Morgoth is going to insist on not only just being acknowledged as a king, but worshipped like a god, right? Um, so I think that they would refer to him in that kind, more of a, more of a religious overtone than a political term. Um, yeah. And no, uh, black speech isn't around yet. Um, I believe it's, Oh, okay. Though. Though, hang on a second. Somebody, so would it be some, some form of corrupted Quenya or Cinderin or something? No, wait, because there is a... Uh, I'm forgetting now. In the, uh... In the... In the, in the Tree of Tongues, um... Somebody looked that up. In the Lost Road. Morgoth does make a language. In imitation of Elvish, I'm sure of it. There's an evil speech. Um, yeah, I know that there's the reference to the black speech being devised by Sauron at the time of the making of the rings, but there is a there is a speech that Morgoth makes, and it's in it's in the Hlamas. It's in or not the Hlamas. It's in the uh, I'm forgetting even the name of the full thing. I should sleep more. Um, 
in the uh, the it is the Hamas. Okay, right. Okay, fine. Uh, in the Hamas, uh, there's a it's so somebody who has time to look through this, which I don't because I'm talking, um, uh, and tell me tell me what that uh, what that is. Um, uh, Orkian, yes, Phil. I knew there was a link. Orkian divine and, and Morgoth is, divines it for the, d- devises it for the orcs based on Valian. Right, uh, the the same val so the same Valiant speech. So it's not derived from Elvish; it's derived from the root ang- uh, language from which Elvish was derived. Right, so he takes the uh, Aromian language, you know, the uh, the language, the Valian language that the elves learned from Orme. Um, right, I think I'm not saying we actually call it that, Karita. Orkian does sound a little strange, uh, but. I knew that back in the early in the early days, there was a there was an evil speech there, and we don't really have to call it anything. I mean, we could just show them speaking it, kind of like what Star Trek's yeah. doing today with the Klingons, and they give subtitles. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, we can uh, uh, we can we can easily do that. Um, Okay, anyway, uh, we're getting kind of far afield, though. Though, all useful stuff. So, okay, so Sauron and Thorin Gwethel talking together. We see Sauron's discontent and uh, the wiliness of his plan. So he is, he's, he's been sent to find Ungoliant. We know that Morgoth still fears Ungoliant, so he wants to know where she is and if she's coming back, right? Um, so he has sent Sauron to find her, and Sauron is like, okay, I'm going to take this and turn this to my advantage. First, I want to see if we can... Uh, uh, if, if, if we... So, hang on. So what if... Because he doesn't know she has offspring yet. So he's going to send Thorin Gwethel after. So he just thinks there's. He, he just thinks this is an Ungoliant issue, right? So he's like, okay, Morgoth said go find Ungoliant and Thorin Gwethel. Between you and me, I think that maybe we could turn this to our advantage, right? Maybe it would be good for us to... Um, um, for us to establish an independent relationship with her ladyship, right? Um, and by the way, I would, I would love, I would kind of, it would be fun, right? If somebody calls on Goliant her ladyship, right? Which is what Shagrat and Gorbag call Shelob, uh, 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 right? Um, uh, that would be, that would be kind of, kind of fun. Anyway, so, so he sends Thorin Gwethel off to find her and cause she would be perfect for that anyway. So she, finds Ungoliant or finds evidence of Ungoliant's disappearance into the extreme south of the world. Maybe she, but then, but she comes back because she finds something cooler, uh, and closer to hand, which is, um, the spiders. She finds, you know, Sheila and Sheila siblings, uh, and comes back to report to, uh, you know, to, to Sauron, Hey, good news, bad news, bad news. I didn't actually find Ungoliant and she's kind of down and out of reach. So Morgoth would be, you know, glad to hear that. But, uh, uh, but you know, no, no good for us, but wait, right. I did find something which is that she has had offspring and there are now, there's like a whole bunch of spiders. And that's then when Sauron would say, okay, brilliant plan, right? Let's recruit, the offspring of Ungoliant and set them up so that we can use them as the like elite spider SWAT team uh, uh, to go in and uh, uh, they'll be our ace in the hole in the conflict against the elves of Beleriand. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so that's how they discover it. Yeah. All right. Um, and that's all we need to know. Oh, we want to do a meeting with Shelob, right? So that would then be a third scene. So scene number one, go find Ungoliant and I'm dissatisfied with Melkor. Uh, then uh, she comes back and reports the spiders and he's like, that's brilliant. Let's take advantage of this. And then she takes him down and he meets with Shelob. Um Or do we need that scene? Do we need a meeting with Shewab? We could just have a third scene. We we could have three scenes. Again, their initial conversation. A second scene, which is just Thorin Gwethil finding Shewab. Right? So all we get is a Thorin Gwethil Shewab scene, in which they don't even necessarily have to have dialogue. We just have Thorin Gwethil discover them. And then she comes back and reports, and he's like, I have a brilliant plan. So then we can, we don't necessarily have to, um, uh, we don't actually have to do a full reveal of Shelob. And uh, no, Tony, I don't think that Shelob is going to take uh, uh, a hot female form uh, as in Shadows of War. Um we had Ungoliant do that. I don't think we want Shelob doing that. Um, she's a different order, anyway, from Ungoliant. I don't see any reason to believe that she can change her form. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. So we can we can and we can decide as we act, as as you guys actually go through and outline this episode. You guys can decide whether you like the idea of you know how much of that sequence you want to include in this episode. Uh, we can we can shift that um, some of it forward if we want to. Um, but I like having that element in here. Okay. All right. Um, All right. Good. Well, let's uh, let's talk about dwarves then. Oop, went the wrong way. Okay. So let's talk about dwarves. So the dwarves of the Blue Mountains, right? There are two families of dwarves in the Blue Mountains, the one that live in Nogrod and the other that live in Belagost. Nogrod in the south, Belagost in the north. Um, the Neither one of these are Durin's folk. Durin's folk, meanwhile, have already set up at Khazad Doom, and they are—they don't come into these stories at all. So none of the none of the children of Durin uh, are going to enter into the Silmarillion story until after the War of Wrath. Um, so we're not going to meet them until the Second Age, at all. Um, this that in uh, volume twelve of the history of Middle Earth, Tolkien names the two families of dwarves that were in Nagrod and Belgas as the Broadbeams and the Firebeards. Um. So, what are they like? What are the Broadbeams and Firebeards like? How do we distinguish them? What are their cultures like? Because we don't want them to look just like the children of Durin. Um, uh, for one thing, we need to make sure that, of course, that the name, the 
common speech name of the children of Durin are, of course, the long beards. Um, so these dwarves should not have long beards, right? Like the characteristic dwarf, uh, like the, the dwarf beard that Thorin has, right? His beard that, you know, the, and the whole may your beard grow ever longer thing, you know, that uh, the dwarves are, are do and, and the whole, like, I can tuck my beard into the, my belt thing, right? That's a long beard thing. Um, so, uh, um, that's, uh, uh, so they're not going to have really long beards, right? So they can have beards, but they should be shorter beards. The fire beards, I agree, Carita, it seems fairly obvious that the fire beards should be largely redheaded. Um, the fire beards are the dwarves of Nogrost and the broad beams of Belagost, right? Nogrod, the firebeards of Nogrod and the broad beams of Belagost. Right. Um, do the firebeards all have Weasley hair then, Phil asks. Uh, you know, they don't, it doesn't have to, they don't have to be uniform, right? You know, we can have them all different shades of red, but, uh, um, but, you know, bright red, I think, should dominate. Um, uh, so, what else? They're all smiths, but they should have different sort of specialties, different things that they're known for. What are the things that they should be known for in particular? Well, there are a couple things we have to guide us here. One, the Silmarillion mentions that the um, dwarves of Belagost are um, the dwarves of Belagost are the ones who devise the the making of uh, armor. Like, they do uh, 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 it, chain mail. Isn't it the armor of interlocking rings that they that they make? They're the ones who invent chain mail? Uh, I think. So, uh, so there are, they can be primarily armor smiths. I would think that people of Nogrod would be primarily jewelers because, I mean, they, they can all make weapons, but um, I would think that we would want to make jewel craft be especially prominent among the dwarves of Nogrod because, remember, it's going to be the craftsmen of Nogrod who are going to be brought in by Thingol uh, to, ad- to put the, Sil- the Silmaril into the Nauglamir down the road. Uh, so having them uh, do jewel craft primarily is uh, um, um, uh, yeah. So I mean, I, I think that that one is one thing that makes sense. Um, now you know this is, and I'm sort of semi-serious with this. You know, there's also things like home decor. You know, like right? like lamps. You know, like things that would probably be hanging in like Metagross mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even in in, in 
gondolin, you know, that would be metal crafted stuff. And I mean, it sounds kind of funny to say, oh, yes, they specialize in home decor. But <laughs> right, exactly. Still... This is the dwarf family that specializes in interior decoration. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yes. And there's right. another family right. of dwarves that, 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 that are just into sartorial fashion. You know, that's that's it's what they do. <laughs> this you is know. the IKEA clan. <laughs> this is <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, you know, if you get into that kind of specialization, I was thinking, you know, even in weapons there could be specialization. I mean there could be mm-hmm. one clan that's specifically known best for swords or axes or throwing axes or right. you know I mean it's like this right. is obviously the work of such and such a client. I don't know well, that's the other thing that we've got to think about is we do have some famous weapons being made. Um, so do we have, you know, some sort of specialization, like, you know, the making of blades is, is uh, sort of particularly character, you know, maybe uh, one of the clans only uses like hammers and maces in battle and the other one uses, you know, uh, swords and axes and daggers. Um in which case, obviously, the sword, axe, and dagger one is where we need to have Telkar the Smith come from. Um, uh, and by the way, I, 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 speaking of the home, I don't want to leave the home decor thing. I agree. Architecture is another thing, right? Um, the crafting of Menegroth is going to be a big deal. Um, do both of them do that equally? Um, uh, so... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I th- I think we could. Uh, I think that we could. I mean, we don't want to get too cute, you know, about having them subspecialize. Um, but I, th- but I, I, it makes sense to have there be trends, you know, and uh, they can all do all, th- you know, they, they can all kind of do all of the things, but. Uh, but have there be a particular short list of things that the different families are particularly famous for. Um, and this kind of strikes me as backstory. You know how, I mean, Jackson did this with the movies, you know, right. where we had, um, it wasn't actually in the movie proper, but there was all this, and of course we're going to have mad fans. I mean, just, we're going to be so popular that it's going to be ridiculous. Um, you know, there was actually stories kind of published or put out as, you know, aside from the movie that informed the viewers, but it right. didn't come into the main story. You know what I mean? This is, seems to be that kind of thing right. where there would be a backstory, but in the actual episodes themselves, we wouldn't really be calling it out. We'd visually see things that would, you know, yeah, that we would be able to identify. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying? So it's almost kind of like it's a necessary backstory to be able to do things like costumes and, um, the looks of dwarves and that kind of thing. But, um, but we don't get, you know, we don't want to get bogged down in the actual episodes themselves with this kind of stuff, although it's still needed. Yes. Yes. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's exactly what's kind of fun talking about this now, as you say, yeah, we're not, it's not like we're going to talk about this in the episode, but, um, uh, but it is really good for us to kind of think this through. <sighs> Hang on, though. I'm having a hard time because um, Maria's pointing out that, yes, like Telkar is from Nogrod. Uh, so that would mean that they'd be the blade people. But. Okay. 
then I couldn't do the other thing. It makes no sense at all. If uh, if like, so, what I was just suggesting about have one dwarf clan primarily fight with edged weapons and the other primarily fight with blunt force trauma weapons. Um, it doesn't make any sense that the dwarves of Belagost would be the blunt force trauma weapon folks because um, they like. Blunt force trauma weapons are exactly the kinds of weapons against chain against which chainmail does very little good. <clears throat> so they're not going to invent chainmail like that. That which is, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and uh, uh, and yes, Azakal, the Lord of Belagost, is the one who uses. Uh, we know he uses a blade because he's the one who stabs uh, Glaurung with it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and no, Mike, I, we don't want to make them homogeneous. That's not the point of making them, like, completely cookie-cutter, each family. Um, but we want to, I, we do want to introduce some distinctions. You know, we, we want there to be, I, I would think we would want there to be a different character between, you know, an, an identifiable character, and one of the ways that we can do that is have general trends of, association, right? Both visual association with things like kinds of armor and weapons, as well as, um, uh, I, you know, th- uh, the, the, the specialty of craft, you know, so that again, like if you're looking for jewel smiths, oh, well, you want to go to the, you know, you want to go to the firebeards for that. Right. Um, that kind of thing just sort of helps. It doesn't mean that there can't be excellent jewel smiths, uh, among the, uh, you know, among the other, you know, among the, the, the broad beams of Belagost, but, um, you know, maybe we do it the other way around. Maybe we have the primary weaponsmiths be the smiths of Belagost, but then we have Telkar be of Nograd, you know, so, but, the, but there's this unusual genius, um, you know, and it, it sort of makes his remarkableness stand out more, right? I don't know. Um, uh, well, the other thing you also referred to earlier, and I think this applies here, is the you know interclan warfare that yes. would cause the, them to smith weapons, right? So, you know, that implies that there are some serious differences between clans, yes. you know, both in look and in sort of viewpoint, and maybe even ideology to some degree, you know. So yes. that's another. Well, that's it. I know. mean, exactly, exactly. I mean, it would be able to. It, it would map onto a larger cultural distinction between the two of them. Um, and they would be, I agree with, uh, who was just saying that, um, they would be competitive as Tony was just saying, right. this. they would be competitive. Right. Um, they can be at peace together. We don't have to show Belagost and, and Nogrod going to war against each other at any point, but there's a difference between, being not being at war and being always friendly, right? I mean, they would be, as Tony suggests, at the very least, they'd be like contractors competing for contracts, right? I mean, <laughs> and they would have a clan rivalry between each other, you know, like, you know, who who really does make the better, you know, armor, the better, you know, who... who... Kind of like the UK football teams, right? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I mean, if there would be there would be a clan rivalry, um, at the very least, um... But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, 
always think of the dwarves as the Ferengi of Middle Earth. <laughs> well, that's the other thing to remember is that the 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 root of dwarves in Tolkien's mythology is that they are merchants. They were merchants before they were uh, before they were craftsmen, right? Um, in the post Hobbit, post Lord of the Rings, Tolkien world we always associate the dwarves with craftsmanship first and foremost. Like it, to be a, to be a craftsman, to be a Smith is the essence of being dwarvish even more than anything else. Right. But in the initial conception, the initial conce- conception, which was still in force when Tolkien wrote the Hobbit, the dwarves are primarily people with a, with a, with a, a high opinion of the value of money. Remember that line, um, in, uh, in the Hobbit. They're primarily merchants, and indeed, they were like warmongering. They, you know, they, they seem to believe in several of the uh, rules of acquisition, um, including, for instance, war is good for business, uh, as Tolkien has them explicitly selling arms to both sides of the elf Morgoth competition, um, and they're making out like bandits uh, in the sea during the siege of Angband. Um, so. Uh, um, and I'm not saying we necessarily do that, though maybe we can have some uh, uh, some uh, implications that some of the dwarves, or that there can be rumors that the dwarves are also selling weapons to the orcs or something. I mean, that can be a thing that we can get in later on to bring in some ill will uh, and distrust, uh, f- you know, further ahead in the days of more distrust. But... Um, uh, but anyway, the, but yeah, they, they are merchants. Being being merchants is still does it should be a, a big deal. It should be a big part of who they are and what they do. Um. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Um. Hmm. Hang on, uh, uh, Mario. We're going to come back to the dwarf women question. Um, still thinking about Nogrod and Belagost right now. Um, I like uh, Marielle, or no, not Marielle, sorry. Marie was saying um, the firebeards, the redheads, can be the primary jewelry makers, and the dark-haired dwarves, the, uh, the broadbeams, uh, can be primarily the weaponsmiths both would do both, but they would, but that would be what they would uh, be most famous for. Um, I think that that's, I think that that's fine. I think that that works well. Um, uh, as I said, the dwarves of Nograd are going to need to be jewel smiths and famous for being jewel smiths. Cause they're the ones that Thingol is going to send for uh, when it comes, uh, when it, when it comes down. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Hakan, I, I would want the fire beards and the broad beams to complement each other, but not too much. Remember, there's competition as well as as complementing, right? They're not just, you know, partners. Uh, they're not just, uh, you know, sort of the perfect, um, you know, uh, team. They're they're in competition with each other. Um, 
So what are the uh, so Mike is asking? So hang on. So what are the Longbeards then known for? Um, if we say weapons and armor, primarily Belagost, jewels and fine work, it's sort of decorative work, um, Nogrod. I say that the Longbeards are primarily known for architecture, like Casa Doom is you know, going to be way grander and more impressive. <laughs> toys. <laughs> Mike and Phil both suggested toys. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, yeah excellent. Excellent. Um, the toy market of Dale was the wonder of the northern world. Um, and of course, Mithril, Zachary, absolutely. You know, that's going to be their trademark, you know, later on down the road. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I would say I would say architecture and uh, 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 chiefly, and then mithril, you know, eventually. So therefore, their weapons and armor become very famous because they can integrate mithril uh, into it. So, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, David. Architecture and metallurgy. Yeah, there you go. That's what uh, that's what the Longbeards are famous for. Again, not that it's going to come up explicitly. Um, and so again, physically, the Firebeards tend to be redheaded. The Broadbeams are darker. That is darker, uh, uh, darker of uh, darker of hair, probably darker of skin as well, perhaps slightly. Um, uh, how about their beards? What should their beards be like? I'm thinking the Broadbeams should be wider and stockier, not necessarily fat, but really broad, you know, hence the name. Um, I mean, broad beams and fire beards sound like names that are giving I mean, long beards, broad beams and fire beards, right? All three of those names in the common speech sound like slightly derisive and descriptive names, right? Um, that's why I think we just, we just, we should follow those things because that's, um, uh, we're, we're kind of doing it backwards, right? We don't make the broad beams wide and fat because they're called broad beams. Rather, we say they were called broad beams because they're wide and fat, right? Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 could be. I'm thinking the broad beams maybe have uh, like sort of thin and scraggly beards. They're not really, th- you know, the. I would think like the beard spectrum, right, would be the broad beams on one end and the long beards on the other, and the fire beards kind of in the middle. Um, you know, like the kind of beard that like goes down to here, maybe, but uh, uh, not the ones that you can tuck into your belt. And then the broad beams are the more uh, scraggly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Mike is uh, suggesting that uh, the, the broad beam could also describe their beards, that their beards kind of grow outwards like this instead of, you know, long and down. Okay, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, enormous whiskers, Hakan says. Yeah. Yeah, Hakan, wouldn't it be cool if the Broadbeams were into, like, elaborate mustaches or something, right? So you have, like, uh, and I don't I don't know if they would wax their mustaches. Um, this, by the way, was uh, uh, my son Matthias's number one request when I started growing a beard. He, re- he was really disappointed that I wasn't letting my mustache grow because he wanted me to wax my mustache. Um, but, um, 
it's it's so I'm afraid he's gonna end up disappointed about that one. Um, but but yeah, so like big like mutton chops or like uh, big uh, uh, big mustaches. Um, maybe even like the mustaches that hang down like past the beard and stuff. You know, like the uh, you know I think that could uh, that 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 could work and be cool looking. Anyway, obviously we're gonna leave these things to our visual folks, uh, our visual artists who can uh, you know help us to 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 really. Uh, uh, capture this stuff, but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tony says, so the broad beams would look like fat Victorian gentlemen. Uh, yeah, not so polished, I would think, but, uh, something like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I can, uh, I can, I can, I can, I, I can handle that. Um, Okay. All right. Um, let's talk more about the culture. So uh, they do, I agree, you know, there's some points that Marie put together for us here. Despite the long distances separating dwarvish strongholds, dwarves maintain a strong us versus them mentality when dealing with, the, with non-dwarves. Yeah, so clan rivalry is all well and good, but they are going to close ranks when they're confronting elves uh, and others. So... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that we would, you know, when we're negotiating with Nograd and Belagost, we're, nego- we're negotiating with them as a, as a, as a, you know, together as a united front, uh, in that sense. Um, and yes, all the dwarves speak essentially the same language, right? So there's no, like, you know, Sindarin, Quenya divide, uh, in Kuzdul. Um, Trish, what do you think about the female dwarves? What do we do with the female dwarves? I have stayed beyond my normal time specifically for this question. Okay, okay. I don't. I think we don't beard the females. I don't think we I beard the females. I just don't think we either. do. I think that's a that was an affectation of Jackson's. Yes, not of it really was. Um, uh, I mean, there is that one brief reference to the fact that dwarf women are sometimes mistaken for dwarf men. He does not say that they have beards. Um, no, I mean. They could, uh, I don't know, I guess in some ways, especially with, you know, maybe longbeard women can or something, but I don't think, I'm not sure that the beard should be such an important fetish for all of dwarf culture as... You know, it has kind of grown into, um, you know, that just, uh, uh, hang on. I think uh, Dave from the train wants to uh, weigh in on this as well. Um, (laughs) What if we, what if we made that a pernicious in world elf lie? Oh, I think that'd be awesome. That that the dwarves actually propagate, you know, promulgate. Like Gimli's saying it could, I mean, I know he did it in the movie and on the book, but I mean, it could be like this thing, the in-joke that dwarves do is like they tell everybody that the women have dwarves, beards. Yeah. Then I was thinking it was the elves' fault. Right. the elves' fault. Right, yeah. Yeah, because the elves, because the elves don't have beards, mostly. Right, right, right. What if there is sort of the, like the in-world truth is something more like, uh, you know, hey, when they're all armored up and fighting, like you wouldn't be able to tell a man from a woman because you know they're all just fierce warriors and all that kind of stuff. Now that um, could be the case. 
Yeah, but where the, female dwarves do fight, yes. you know, right. and they, they armor up just like the men do. Yeah. Right, but then the, uh, but then like Kurafin or someone starts the beard rumor. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, that you can't yeah. tell any difference. Between, and Which, of course, and that misconception is enabled to uh, continue because dwarvish women don't go, uh, so... Because they're secretive, right? They generally they don't go into public that much. They're not going to be merchants, but they would be warriors and right. and smiths. Right. And I could see, you know, I could see the elves starting it, and then the dwarves never bothering to correct anybody. Because, you know, why do they want people to really know the truth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, it would be hard to, it would be hard to, Mariel's expressing concern, like, how do we convey this on screen? Um, <laughs> Mariel is suggesting we could actually have this, uh, this rumor could then be further justified by the fact that some dwarf w- women could actually wear false beards in public. Uh, to disguise themselves because <laughs> they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they're women. See, that, makes sense. that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I like that. Um, I mean, I could totally see this becoming a falsehood that dwarves would support, you know, that they would never deny because they're so secretive. So, yeah. you know, the rumor that the females have dwarves is something the dwarves would like take advantage of as opposed to trying to like you know, right. disabuse anybody of right. their misconception. Right, exactly. Because they wouldn't be insulted by it. They wouldn't really care no. necessarily. And they wouldn't be, yeah. <laughs> they'd, probably, they'd probably be like, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It'd be awesome if the women had beards. Right, yeah. Now, Lincoln is suggesting, and, and I agree, there's definitely, a you know, an argument to be made for this to say that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, um, it's kind of... Interesting if the female dwarf, you know, if basically if the dwarves don't conform to to human, you know, body types, um, and so therefore, like, is there any reason why you know why they shouldn't grow beards? Like, it would be you know, it, it could be kind of interesting in that way. Um, well, then the other thing with that is maybe some male dwarves are clean shaven. Then in that case, you know what I mean? It's like let's if we're not gonna if we're gonna break up the stereotype with the women, let's do it with the men too. In which right. case, maybe maybe it's both. You right. know, some are clean shaven, some are bearded, and they're both men and women. I don't know. Well, you know? I yes, there I, I do agree again. Like the 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 obsession with beards, right, and the idea that like no man would ever shave his beard. That's got to be a long beard thing, right? The long beards are the ones that really, because like their identity is in their beards, right? So they're the ones who go around saying, may your beard grow ever longer and that kind of thing. Um, I agree. There's no reason we couldn't have some clean shaven um, uh, fire beards or, 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 or uh, broad beams. Um, yeah. Um Phil does point out that shaving would be sensible when you're dealing with hot metal. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. You don't want to let your beard fall into the forge, right? Uh, or come between, you know, your hammer and your anvil at any point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 
Oh, sorry. Somebody made a suggestion that I loved and I didn't get to say it at the time. Um, uh, oh, darn it. Who was that? Um, it was about Aule. Um, remember that, um, of course, when Aule made the dwarves, one of the reasons they look like they do is that he didn't know exactly what the children of Iluvatar were going to look like. Um, so the fact that the women are bearded, that that could also be explained thereby. Like that, you know, like he, he, he had a vague impression of facial hair. So he just like gave facial hair to all the dwarves uh, and didn't realize there was going to be a, you know, a gender distinction between, you know, on the facial hair question. Um, uh, and so, you know, kind of left that out. But that's a little harder to maintain, uh, given that most of the elves don't seem to, you know, neither men nor women among the elves seem to have beards. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and now, Karita, I agree with you one way or the other. Karita is saying we should either give them you know, beautiful beards or let them be barefaced, but not, you know, make an ugly joke about, uh, you know, gross female body hair. Basically. I agree. We, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to just play it as a joke. Um, and that's, that's, I think my main, that's my main concern is I don't want it to become, like you said, such a focus, such an issue. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe that's maybe we can. What we can just do is play up the secrecy of the of the dwarvish women, so that we never show them, un, except when they're armored and visored, right? So right. we so could we actually, actually don't know. yeah, we never reveal whether or not dwarvish women have beards, and we leave right. it to we people know the to speculate. Among the elves, is that they do, but we will never know. I yeah. like that. I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they would be either like visored or veiled or something uh, uh, because they just because they keep themselves secret. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Of course, and Maria is pointing out that Aule himself has a beard, so he could just be modeling the dwarves, all the dwarves after himself. Um, okay, cool. Um uh, so, uh, let's see a couple, there are a couple other points here. Um, Marielle, absolutely. Marielle here is emphasizing about the vast trading networks, which means Marielle, that the implication that we can have here, we can have there be a couple references. There can be some exotic commodities that come into Beleriand through the dwarves, right. To show evidence of the, you know, the, cause it's not, they don't just trade to the West, right. They don't just go into Beleriand. They're also going East, right. They're also going out into Eriador, uh, trading with the dwarves of, of Khazad-dûm and on South. So, I mean, we could have, uh, you know, the dwarves coming in and bringing in, um, uh, uh, bringing in, you know, like, bananas and coconuts, you know, from, from the South at some point, um, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, you know, I think that we can, uh, um, uh, we would definitely need to, uh, uh, to bring in some stuff and to, 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 to show that there's evidence that they are a very widespread trading culture. Um, yeah, silk, Marielle, that'd be that would be really interesting because you'd think uh, the elves would be kind of into silk, right? They would like that. Um, so th- that's a really great suggestion of a kind of commodity that could be brought in by the, you know, that's only uh, uh, obtainable 
from the dwarves. Um, and yes, Mithril from Khazad-dûm, we can go there, Tony, I think. I would want to go there very rarely. Um, uh, I think, Mike, I think you're on exactly the right suggestion there. Mithril from Khazad-dûm could be brought in to make the Nauglamir out of. Yes. Um, that sounds perfect to me. Um, <clears throat> and have it be the only one. Have the Nauglamir be like the only Mithril in Beleriand, essentially. Um, and it's one of the things that makes the Nauglamir such a big deal, even before the Silmaril gets put into it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Brianna suggesting that the, the Feanorians are the most silky of the lot. Uh, can I just say I love the idea of Caranthir dressed in a lot of silk? Um, uh, that is That makes me laugh. Uh, I like that. Um, anyway, okay, yeah, cool, cool. Um, interesting, uh, Hyrungil's suggestions here about sort of the different characters of the different clans. Uh, Firebeard's more aggressive and warlike. Uh, remember the Firebeards, the Dwarves of Nograd, are going to be the ones who are going to end up in the war with Doriath eventually, so remember we have lots of kind of foreshadowing of that, uh, at the beginning, uh, here in this first relationship. Um, the broad beams, more dark, silent into mystery or magic. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, more mysterious in a sense. Yeah. I could, that, that, that I could see. Um, and right with the long beards is more Germanic or Norse. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great suggestions. Okay. Now a couple specific characters that we need to think about setting up. Uh, because there are some dwarves that we definitely need to meet. First is, of course, Telkar the weaponsmith. Now, here, Mary, I'll come back to the point that you were making before. There was discussion on the discussion board about making Telkar female. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I, I think that the dwarf women should be smiths, and I have no see no good reason why Telkar couldn't be. Um, I think that would be fun. I don't know how it would come up. Um, well, we'll have to think about that. But another thing we need to think about, and a couple of you mentioned this earlier on, Telkar, of course, made a uh, made a, a few major, um, uh, really important things, right? Um, uh, Telkar is the one who forges, uh, 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 Angrist, the knife that Baron is ultimately going to use to cut the Silmaril out of Morgoth's crown. Um, Telkar, of course, most famously, um, uh, is the one who forges Narsil. So, you know what we don't have? Any story about what Narsil does in the first age. We can't have that. Right? If Telkar forges Narsil early on, right, then what's Narsil doing? I mean, we know it's going to become a Numenorean heirloom. Right? We know... We know that Thingol's sword, Aranruth, 
is going to be the sword of the king uh, of is 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 going to become the Numenorean king sword. So it is Arun Ruth uh, that Arpharazon is wearing and wielding when he attacks Valinor eventually. Um, so f- fine, we know that. Um, so that becomes the sword of the king of of the king of the Numenoreans. Narsil, forged by Telkar, is an heirloom still in the house of Elros, right? And ends up going to the, you know, that 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 other family, the the uh, you know the, the line which leads to Elendil rather than the line that leads to Arpharazon. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about the Age of Dwarves for a second. Now, we know that by the time we're in the Third Age, the dwarves are living about 250 years or so. Can we make them longer-lived in the First Age? Do we have a reason not to? Could we make the broad beams and the and or the uh, fire beards just be sort of longer-lived than... Uh, Um, yeah. I mean, I agree, Marie, one of the ways in which dwarves contrast with elves is their mortality. Um, but you can still live for quite a while and still be mortal, right? And still have a very short lifespan compared to elves. Um, now, the elves aren't going to see the dwarves dying of old age, right? They're, they don't live with them enough to this, so that when, you know, Beor dies of old age, it's still a shock. Um, but yeah, anyway, hang on. Let's answer the Narso question quickly first. But anyway, the point is Telkar, there's no way that Telkar can possibly still be around in the second age or something. So Telkar is, is, is early, has to forge Angrist. So, uh, Telkar is, is, is going to be here. I think that we can meet Telkar, uh, here, um, uh, anyway, so, okay, Narsil. I mean, Narsil's a big deal, right? Um, uh, the fact is, Narsil is one of those backwards projections. Um, I don't think that Elendil's sword was forged by, a, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> a dwarf of Belagost or not, you know, a, a dwarf of Nogrod until Aragorn says that. Until Aragorn says, Telkar wrought it in the deeps of time. I think that's the moment when Telkar became the... You know, so there is no story about Narsil in the First Age because it didn't exist when he was writing the stories of the First Age. But it's one of those things which, in retrospect, I mean, it's gotta it's gotta be... I think it's gotta be important. Um, so, what role does it play? It's gotta come in. Somehow it has to get to the Numenorians. It has to get to Elros, but not be Elros's primary sword. That's Aran Ruth, right? So, uh, the ultimate destiny, or the ultimate destiny, the uh, the immediate destiny of Narsil is to become Elros's second best sword, right? One of the two surviving swords of the First Age, uh, which is uh, uh, which is a really big deal. So, to whom do we give it? It can't be Tuor, Zach, because Tuor has an axe. He has an awesome axe. And I, I, I'm really looking forward to the axe of Tuor, because I think the axe of Tuor is awesome. Uh, so it can't be Tuor. Um, uh, 
who can we give a sword to? Fingon suggests Mike. That's a really interesting suggestion. Though, see, I, I think it it shouldn't be a Noldo, right? Because the Noldo would make his own sword. Um, so it would have to be something that would come in, wouldn't it be? I mean, Finrod, Finrod's sword. Okay, I could see Finrod wielding a dwarvish sword. We know that, you know, Finrod is going to be connected to dwarves as well with the whole Felagun thing, and he's the one who has the Nauglamir, right? Um, yeah. Mike and Hakon both suggest Celeborn. But why wouldn't he keep it? So he'd give it up. But Hakon, it would be kind of anticlimactic, right, for Celeborn to give his sword to Elros to be his second best sword, right? You'd think it would have to be, you know, he'd... he'd, he'd and I, 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 I yield my ancient blade to be your backup sword, Elros. That, that, that seems a little bit... a little bit sad. Um... It could, Tony, be... So Tony's thinking about associating it with the Ring of Bari here uh, to be an heirloom of the House of Baor. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and that can work, but it, that can't be original. I mean, Baor is going to come in long after Telkar is dead, presumably, unless we make Telkar very long-lived indeed. So uh, even then it would have to be handed down to the House of Baor from somebody else. Um, from from Finrod, I assume, is what you're suggesting there, Tony. Um, it couldn't be Hurin's sword, Mike, because then it would be lost, right? Hurin presumably loses his sword at the Fens of Serech. Um, yeah, Mike, it does have to pass to humans at some point. I agree. Well, no. Yeah, but no, not necessarily, uh, because it can be where it has to go. If we trace it backwards, right, from Elros, it would go backwards and be, it just has to get in the bay of, at the the refugee camp at Balar, right? Um which means it could come from Gondolin, it could come from Doriath, it could come from Nargothrond, um, hmm. um, yeah, Finrod could give it, well, see, Lincoln, that's my problem. I, I, would Baron get it? Because if it's, if it's Finrod's, Baron is the only one to whom it could hand it down because Finrod, if Finrod, if it's Finrod's sword, then Finrod would use it until the end, until he died. So it would have to go to Baron, whether he gifts it to him or not. Either he gifts it to Baron or Baron loots it off his corpse, one or the other. Um, but it would have to pass from Finrod to Baron. Uh, and then Baron dies, you know, his body is in Doriath, so assuming he gets it back. It could descend them and come ultimately to the refugee camp at Balar through Elwing. 
Um, Yeah, Marie, I agree. It can't come from Gondolin. That doesn't make any sense. They don't trade with dwarves. and Yeah, yeah, they're too cut off there. Mariel is wondering if the Sword of Finrod might be too high profile. But still, it's but it's got to be old. I mean, even Finrod. How is even Finrod going to get it? I mean, I guess it could be a sword that Telkar made that could be given to Finrod as a gift from the dwarves after Telkar's death. She doesn't have to still be around. Um, Finrod to Beren to Dior to Elwing. Mike, that could work. It could work. I mean, I kind of... Don't get me wrong, I like the idea of it being Baron's sword, becoming Baron's sword. Um... Except here's my here's here's my one hesitation. My one hesitation um, is no. Remember, Mariel Thingol has his sword. Aaron Ruth is his sword, and that's the sword that becomes Elros's number one sword. Um, now, Phil asks a good question. Phil says, "Does it have to be famous?" from the start, could it just become famous because it survived? So, in the First Age, it's a perfectly average sword, but a perfectly average sword from the First Age becomes a, you know, uh, becomes an awesome thing after the fact. Yeah, but... uh, I don't, like, for dramatic purposes, I think it would be coolest if this is a, if this item, if this is an heirloom, we want to see this getting passed down, right? Um, it's one of the cool things about doing the whole longitudinal film film project, right? Is that by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings story, think of the weight of history, just within the context of, of the film film show itself, right? Um, the Ring of Barahir, right? When when Aragorn shows up at the Ring of Barahir on his hand in The Lord of the Rings, the people around him in the story, the other characters in the story, most of them aren't going to get the significance of that, but the viewers will, right? The viewers are going to remember, they're going to remember the day that Finrod gave that to, uh, uh, to Barahir, right? Um, they're going to remember Baron taking it you know, uh, from the orcs who slew his father. They're going to remember, you know, Finrod and Beren, uh, you know, in the dungeons of the Necromancer. Um, you know, it's going to be, that's going to be really cool. So similarly, I think that, I think that Narsil, we need to, we need to be able to see, so that when Aragorn is reforging Narsil, you know, when Elendil is using it and it's broken and then Aragorn reforges it again, we have this continuous history of it. Um, yeah. Um, Marie, I agree. I'm, I'm kind of joking when I'm calling it Elros's second best sword. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that I think that he should wield it. It's just, I'm calling it that because it is passed down. It comes to the house of Elros, but it is not the sword of Elros. The sword of Elros is 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 Aranruth. So we could just ditch that. On the one hand, we could ditch Aranruth. No, we can't ditch Aranruth because the sword of Elros and the king of Numenor has to perish with our Farazan. So let's keep around Aranruth for that reason. Um, uh, 
So yeah, Tony, exactly. Something more like the traditional sword of the crown prince of Numenor would be. Yeah, exactly. So the king wields Ruth and his heir. Because remember, the, the whole appointing of the heir to the throne in Numenor is, is a big deal, right? You sort of, uh, there's there's like a, like a sort of a coronation ceremony for the heir. Um, and so at, at, at that point, it could, uh, it could... That could be the moment when Narsil is given to them. Except, no, wait, that doesn't work either. Because then it would still be in the household of Arpharazan. Um, who doesn't have an heir, I guess. But but it has to, it has to at some point then become the sword. Get passed down in the, uh, from, uh, who was it? Silmarian, uh, down into the, um, down to the line of, down to Elindo, obviously, so he can end up with it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so Tony, we have to figure out, we just have to figure out a story for why the Sword of the Crown Prince instead <clears throat> passes through Somarian to the Lords of Andunia. But we can handle that when we get there, if we, if, if, if we need to. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The point is still, where does it come from? Okay, oh, but I didn't get to talk about my barren objection. Here's my barren objection. When's he going to use it, Baron? Is he ever going to draw it? I mean, he threatens to... I mean, think about it. After Finrod's death, there are very few times that Baron is in armed combat after that. Right, he fights with Caligorm, but that's mostly tussling. Right, um, he uh, he goes, but he's disguised as a wolf when he goes into into Angband. Um, he then gets his hand bitten off. He would fight with it against the dwarves, right? Um. Would he kill? Could he kill the wolf with it? Could he kill Karkaroth with it? Well, Huon has to kill Karkaroth, but he could wound Karkaroth with it. Um, so yeah, Mariel against the dwarves of Nogrod is really the primary place. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Um, yeah, Mariel, that's kind of... I mean, we could work that, right? The only time Telkar's sword is used by Baron is against the dwarves of Nogrod, right? I mean, there's some irony there that could be really fun, right? The lord of Nogrod could... Uh, um, could... recognize it, right? Uh, so that's kind of fun, actually. Okay, all right, all right. And, and you've convinced me. That alone is awesome enough reason to, and and it makes sense. That that's the only way that the gift of the dwarves to, uh, to, Finrod is the only way that I can see, um, that I can see Anoldo getting it because otherwise the Noldo are going to make their own stuff. Um, yeah. Yep. So yes. Dwarves to Finrod to Baron to Dior. No, oh, shoot, because Dior has to get Aaron Ruth. He has to get Thingol's sword. Oh man, we've run into Aaron Ruth again. Oh. 
<laughs> Dior's second best sword, says Lincoln. Okay, well, so now, oh, Marie, I'm fine. Marie wants it to be Elros's wife's sword. I'm totally fine with that, but I'm not worried about Elros. I'm worried about getting it to Elros. Once we get it to Elros, we can, we can, we'll be fine. It's just getting it to Elros that we need to do. Dior as Thingol's heir is going to be, is going to be using Thingol. So we already have Aranruth itself, Thingol's sword, um, coming to, has to get to the Bay of Balar so that Elros can, can use it. Um, Right, Dior can still have Narsal and it can be taken to the coast by Elwing. Yeah, but see, I, I, I don't want. I mean, it is kind. Of, it's become a running joke already, uh, Lincoln, that it's like the second best sword. But come on, that's a lame story for Narsal. Like to have Narsal be like the always a bridesmaid, never a bride sword of the first age. I mean, you know, come on, that's kind of sad. Um, Elwing is going to have to bring Aran Ruth. So we're going to have her carry two swords? So she, she, she comes to, to, to Balar uh, burdened by two swords and the Silmaril, right? Um, so wait a second. <sighs> Mike wants to know if we can somehow get Narsal into Elendil's hands. Yes, the question is, how do we get it out of Elendil's hands? Um, or, sorry, Eärendil's hands. Um, how do we get it out of Eärendil's hands if once it gets there? Um, he would have a sword. We know he has a sword. It's in the description. Um, I kind of like the idea that um, I kind of like the idea that Narsil is the sword that Eärendil uses in his fight with Ancalagon the Black. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, if the sword of Elendil turned out to be the sword that killed Ancalagon, you know, the greatest dragon ever, like, that'd be fun. Um, but um oh mario you've got it you've got it Mar- mario has solved it i i'm totally sold okay 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 and this brianna this can make you happy too mythros the sword goes from baron to dior right so dior does have the two swords it's lost, though. It is lost in the. Uh, it's lost in the in the ruin of Doriath when the Feanorians attack, and Mithros gets it, and then Mithros gives it to Elros. I like that. I like that. Yes. So in the sack of Doriath, 
the, one of the Fanorians gets it, but he doesn't get Aaron Ruth. And that would explain why, um, that would explain why Elros has two swords, right? Because Aaron Ruth would come down to him as it were, like lawfully, right? Um, that is, it, uh, uh, Elwin can bring Aaron Ruth, her father's sword, along with uh, the Silmaril, right? The, she can carry both of those with her out of Doriath. Uh, so uh, that sword comes eventually to Elros through um, uh, through his mom, but then Mithros gives him Narsil. Yeah. <laughs> no, Mike, I was just thinking the same thing. Why do we have two twin brothers, one of whom has two swords and the other of whom has no sword at all? What about poor Elrond, right? Poor Elrond is being passed over and gets nothing for Christmas, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, I've got it. I've got it. Um, uh, okay. So, um, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. Elrond gets Aranruth. And Elros is given Narsil by, uh, by, um, by Mithros, right? Um, and it's, it's, we can use that as a, like, a gift of atonement thing as a gesture which shows Mithros's remorse, right, and his befriending of of the twins and stuff. So that that works really well. So Elrond has Aron Ruth, and Elros has Narsil, right at the end of the first stage. There, then when they split up, right, when Elrond stays and Elros goes to become the first king of Numenor. Elrond gives his brother Elros Aranruth, saying, this is the sword of the king. Um, you know, uh, and so it should be yours. And so that's why Narsil, which was given to him, which was the sword of Baron, but was given to him by Mithros, uh, becomes his second best sword. Like, he keeps it as an heirloom of his house, because in sort of, in memory of Mithros, um, and in memory of, in honor of Baron, of course, but he takes Aranruth as his sword, and that becomes the sword of the king, because it is in that context, in that separation, when Elrond uh, gives it to him. Phew! Oh, good. Mario, you just suggested that, too. Right? Yeah. Excellent. Um, okay. Boy, that was harder than I expected it to be. <laughs> Goodness. That was complicated. Yeah, but I think that works. I think that works. It's the Brotherhood of the Traveling Sword. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Mariel, right, exactly, Mariel. Uh, exactly as you suggest, Elrond has this sort of foresight, right? He has this for At the moment of their separation, He know, he's never going to be a king, right? He's never going to be a ruler. He's like, that is not going to be my role, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I am, I am never going to wield the sword of the king, so he gives that uh, to his brother. Um, and yes, uh, uh, David Elros uh, should give Elrond something else back. But we can think about that later. Um, 
I'm not going to worry. <laughs> Let's not borrow too much trouble. It's relevant now because of Telcar the Smith. So, okay. Phew. All right. Um, uh, yeah. So, oh, and so, and so think of the significance, right? Elendil comes back to Middle-earth with Narsil, right? So think of the, like that moment, right, in the last alliance when Gilgalad and Elrond meet with Elendil and he's still wielding Narsil the sword, that his, his brother's old sword that he remembers Mithros giving to him and everything. Oh, man. Like, that, you know, it would be, that would be, that would be really, uh, 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 you know, that'd really bring back the memories for Elrond, wouldn't it? Um, okay, anyway, whew. I'm glad we, I'm glad we solved that though. That was, that was bothering me. Um, uh, okay. So Gamil Zirak. Now Gamil Zirak was supposed to be Telkar's master. I want to use Gamil Zirak, uh, in a different way. We need a famous dwarf craftsman to be the like red shirt dwarf craftsman who, who do, whom Thingol hires uh, to um, uh, to 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 put the Silmarillion to reforge the Nauglamir, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna nominate Gamil Zirak for that. Um, Gamil Zirak Gamil just means the old, um, and so again the idea is Gamil Zirak is 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 the sort of the teacher of Telkar, um, but I think I wanna I th- I think I wanna I think I wanna uh, flip that too. Um, because I would want Gamil Zirak to be the, uh, by the time we get to the ruin of Doriath, it's, it's, it's been a while, right? But Gamil Zirak is going to be like one of the, like the, one of the last of the ancient craftsmen, right? That can be super old, uh, by this time and therefore, uh, more of an outrage when Thingol, uh, mistreats him. You know when they when they get into their when when they get into their fight, I'm imagining Gamil Zirak, the uh, the aged, venerable, and enormously respected dwarf. So this is why the dwarves of Nogrod go to war over this, right? Because like Gamil Zirak, you know what the whom they would basically view as the greatest jewel smith of all time, right? Gamil Zirak is like the you know would be like the you know like the Feanor of the dwarves, right? The Feanor of 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 uh, of the Firebeards, um, uh, and you know he had to, like he, he ends up being killed um, by uh, uh, you know by by elves in Doriath. Um, he would not be responsible for the death of Thingol. I would think that like his young and rash assistants would probably do the actual killing of, uh, of thing. I wouldn't have him actually wield the blade. That's I would have him be this sort of tragic figure trying to reconcile things and getting caught in the middle of it and ending up dead tragically. Um, and then, uh, having him having the war of vengeance, uh, fought over him. Um, so th- th- that's my thought for Gamil Zirak. Uh, so I, I want to hang on to him. We won't get to Gamil Zirak obviously right away. But again, we're talking about dwarf culture in general, right? So I wanted I wanted to make sure to mention there are only a few named dwarves. So I thought we'd throw them in uh, so that we can be uh, prepared there. So that so Telkar uh, would come first. Do we want to make Telkar still of Nogrod? Make Telkar a Firebeard? I mean, he was, but we don't have to 
keep him or her um, uh, a uh, a firebeard. We can make him a broadbeam if the broadbeams are primarily the the weapon folks. Again, we could make him an exceptional um, uh, firebeard. Um, but I don't think we ha- I don't think we have to. If we did that separately, then we would have basically two primary craftsman figures, right? Telkar, the greatest weaponsmith of all time, and Gamil Zirak, the greatest uh, jewelsmith of all time among the dwarves. So that would be you know one of Belagos, one of Nogrod. That would kind of balance better. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brandis says it's hilarious whenever I suggest making a character a tragic figure because every single character in the Silmarillion is already one. Well, that's the point, Brianna. It's not that I'm wanting to transform them into a tragic figure. It's that I want to make sure that we do justice to the to the individual tragedies of each character. That's really that that that's really my point. Um. Uh. So. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So. And, and, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not committed to that. I don't especially care uh, which group Telkar is from. Um, do we want to have Telkar be around at this time? Have Telkar be the one? Because, I mean, the, the the advantage of having Telkar be around now is that we can have Aeol studying with Telkar um, so that, uh, you know, we have the greatest weaponsmith. Be, you know, it, it enables us to... Pers- rather than the sort of, you know, non-personal... Aeol studied with the dwarves, right? Like, he just, like, went vaguely among the dwarves and kind of learned vaguely stuff. Instead, we can have a particular relationship between Telkar and Aeol. And, uh, um, you know what I'm thinking there, actually? We could have a really interesting scene where Telkar is disapproving of Anglachel. Um, that is, like, it would be the first foreshadowing of ill to come uh, from Anglachel. Like, you know, Eol, uh, Telkar could come in and see Anglachel and be like, dude, like, that 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 thing ain't right. Like, it just ain't right. Um, and, uh, or, you know, to caution Eol about it or something. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so Mike, exactly. Mike said, we don't have to waste screen time on dwarves we're not invested in. Exactly. I want to resist... Just having like, and now, dwarf extras, right? Uh, I mean, if we're gonna have, if we're gonna establish relationships and have them playing particular roles, I want to introduce particular dwarf characters, but I don't want to, I don't want to multiply the cast of characters unnecessarily. This is one of the reasons why I wish we could make the dwarves a little longer lived, right? Because it would be. From a dramatic standpoint, it would be awesome if Azahal, Lord of Belagost, is the one with whom we're making the alliance at the beginning. If if Azahal is the lord um, who is primarily the, uh, uh, the one with whom we're establishing this relationship, so that when Azahal's... Remember, Azahal's fate is to be killed by Glaurung at the Battle of Sudden Flame... And but he's gonna he's gonna die wounding Glaurung and Glaurung is gonna go slinking injured back to uh, back to Angband after that. So um, Azakal will die uh, heroically um, uh, in the battle, and it would be nice to kind of uh, um, uh, to kind of set that up right um, uh, earlier on. If it <clears throat> gives him more of a, a sort of a heroic uh, um, arc. Um, yeah, see, Mike, I'm, that's what I was thinking. You've got Narsil and Anglachel, right, like, right next to each other. Like, <clears throat> Telkar has just made Narsil, and, and Aeol has just made 
Anglachel and we have like the 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 you know Telkar could be looking at the two of them and talking about the difference of their of their of their two fates. Yeah, that's exactly um, the kind of thing the kind of thing that I'm thinking of there. Um, anyway, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I am misrem. I. It's the Battle of Unnumbered Tears that Azakal dies. Am I misremembering, Marie? Oh, what could be likelier than that? That is me misremembering that. It's Unnumbered Tears? I thought that was Sudden Flame. Isn't that what drew... No. Because... Yeah. No, it is. I mean, I I know Glaurung is there in both. But, yeah... No, as I think about it, I think you're right. Darn it. I say darn it because if that's the case, then we really can't, obviously we can't stretch them out that long. I mean, because of course, you know, we always do have the option of trimming down the 400 years a little bit, right? I mean, I know the scene of the Siege of Angband lasts for 400 years, um, we could we could nip a little bit off of that uh, time. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yes, you're right. Yeah, no, it is unnumbered tears. Shoot, I had forgotten that. I had forgotten that. Um. Yeah, see, yeah. So, Tony, that's what I, so, um, Tony is thinking of the same thing that I was vaguely gesturing towards earlier on. If, let's look for a second, so I'm getting out my Return of the King here. Um, look at the, uh, the line of Durin, right? Um, Durin the Deathless lived quite a while. Um, of course, we don't we don't get during the Deathless during the Deathless's uh, age at death. Um, but and yeah, they do recycle names, Lincoln. That doesn't help me all that much. I mean, it's a little bit of a help, but it's a disappointment still. Um, I mean, yeah, like the, the Azakal and Unnumbered Tears could be the son or the grandson of this Azakal, and they could have the same name because, yeah, I mean, dwarves do do that and everything, but it's not the same, right? Oh well, oh well. All right, I'll just have to give it up. Um. Ooh, I don't think I want to go in the reincarnation direction, Marielle. That's a can I don't want to open. Um, I just want to back slowly away from that question, I think. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, right. That I'm sorry, Marielle, but you're thinking about the you're thinking about the Durin thing. Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. You're right. 
Okay, so just as Durin comes back in his descendants, so Azakal, who is like the Durin of of uh, of you know the broad beams, would you know come back. Um, is it too much to ask to make dwarves in the first age really long lived, right, and have their lifespans diminish? over the, you know, as the time goes by, so that by the time we get to the end of the Third Age, they're now only living 250 years, whereas they used to routinely live, like, a thousand years. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) Fine. Okay, fine. That's fine. It's fine. Um, How would we explain the diminishing lifespans, Zach? Well, they're fading, like the elves. You know, the dominion of men is coming, right? So that would affect the dwarves as well. Um... And Tony's right. See, Tony's on my side. That's good. It, it would parallel what happens with the Numenorians later. But see that if we did if we did the parallel with the Numenorians, then we have to show how like the because the decline in the age of the Numenorians correlates directly with their with their like moral corruption. So I don't really want to go there. So, um, uh, Hakan, yes, the dwarf fathers would be especially old. So like Durin the first. Lived a, could have, could have lived a really long time like the yeah that's not hard come on you can give me that right you you can totally give me that much that the 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 seven fathers of the dwarves so the dwarves actually shaped by the hand of Aule live longer than their descendants right so they can live they can live as long as we need them to live they can live like a couple thousand years if we need to but then then the 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 other dwarves. Like the, their descendants then live, live a lesser time, right? Come on, you can spot me that, because then, because okay, so here's the payoff, right? Here's the payoff from that. Then Azakal, the dwarf who dies in the Battle of a Number of Tears, is so. So we have the climactic death of the. He's the Durin of Belagost, right? So it's a big deal. So we have. I mean, that, that's. Think about the the gravity of that the gravity of that funeral procession. This is not just like, hey, this dude happens to be our king. This is our Durin, right? This is the father of our line, uh, who gave his life to help protect, and is a big deal, right? So that would be really cool. So yeah, let's have Azakal be one of the seven fathers. Why not? Why not? Um, and the Lord of Nograd, right? The one whom Baron kills in at Sarnathrad. Is, is is also one of the other seven, right? So he's he's so we've got Durin and we've got uh, uh, Azakal and the rather disappointingly named Naugladur. He's never named. So in the published Silmarillion, the Lord of Nogros of Nogrod, who uh, is killed by Baron, is just called the Lord of Nogrod all the way through. He's not given a proper name, and the name Naugladur, uh, which I have put up here is only mentioned... He's called Nagladur in uh, the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, so, Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, uh, the story of the Nauglamir, we get we get that. But yeah, Tony, exactly. It is an elvish name. And what's more, it's a really disappointing one because it just means the king of the dwarves, right? It basically translates to king of the dwarves. Uh, something like that. So, uh, you know, I... Um, I We don't have to stick with that name. I'm totally fine with giving him a a, a better name. But um, yeah, um, so yeah, 
So can we compromise there? It's fine. So Marie, it's fine. We can make this. We we can make the craftsman short live. So Telkar doesn't have to live that long, right? Gamil Zirak doesn't have to live that. Long. He can be very venerable, right? So Gamil Zirak can be like three fifty or four hundred, which means we'd have to introduce him. Well, he'd be the original maker of the Nauglamir. Easy, easy. Okay, right. So we introduce uh, Gamil Zirak. He is like a young, he's like the young prodigy, right? When he, they, they, they give this young prodigy, who's not going to be called Gamil, he's going to be called Zirak, right? So Zirak, the, uh, the, this, this hot young prodigy from Nogrod, they, they bring him some imported mithril. He gets that together with Finrod's gems and he makes the Nauglamir, right? Um, in his, uh, in his early life. And then, uh, later on, so now it's been hundreds of years, right? And he is now Gamil Zirak, Zirak the old, uh, the, the ancient venerable, he's like 400 plus or something. Uh, and he is brought in to remake the Nauglamir, which he originally made. See, that works, right? That's okay. But so he's old cause his name means old, <clears throat> but he's not super ridiculously old. As Mariel was just pointing out, Dwalin lives to 340, right? So, come on, you can spot me a 400-year-old dwarf. It's all good. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so let's make the lords of Belagost and Nogrod two of the Seven Fathers. Why not? Um, uh, now, Lincoln is wanting us to do, uh, like, you know, if we're going to cover two of the Seven Fathers of the Dwarves, that, like, how are we not going to do something with Durin's story? I hear you, Lincoln. I mean, it's hard because he's so out of it, right? I mean, geographically so out of it. I don't know how we get there. Um, But, uh... Anyway, I... I, um, We could do it in flashback, Marie. Yeah. From the Second Age, when we get over there geographically. Um... Are we ever going to go back to Eriador? Is our narrative ever going to go back to Eriador? I can think of very few occasions. I mean, when men come in, maybe. Um, maybe a Sauron subplot, Lincoln. We are going to need to... We are going to need to stash a Balrog in Moria, right? That's going to need to happen at the end of the first stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah, Marie's pointing out we do need a Tom Bombadil cameo. That's true. But even having him... Uh, um, uh, interact with Durin would be a challenge. Um, yeah. No, Zach, I, I... Well, I'll have to see. We don't necessarily have to show the Balrog going there. Um, but uh, I'm just thinking of, like, I thought of that just in casting my mind to the question of like, what kind of connections does Durin have to first age stories at all? 
right? And the only thing I can think of is the Balrog. Of course, they're going to discover the Balrog there, but the Balrog has to get there, and all the Balrogs are elsewhere. You know, so right now, in the first stage, Durin is already uh, at Khazad Doom, and the Balrogs are all you know still above ground, right? Um, so uh, it has to be after Durin is there that the Balrog, you know, burrows his way to the uh, you know hiding himself under Khazad Doom, but. Um, ah, Tony Mead suggests that some of the petty dwarves could come from the Longbeards, and that could give us an excuse to at least talk about Durin. Yeah. You're right that Tom Bombadil has a dwarvish name. Well, Marie, there's no problem having him encounter dwarves, right? Because the dwarves travel, and he doesn't travel. Tom Bombadil doesn't travel, but the dwarves do, right? I mean, they're all over the place. Their their road goes right past. Um, It's the dwarf road that, uh, you know, he takes, uh, uh, you know, Frodo and the Hobbits to in the Fellowship of the Ring. So, um, yeah. Oh, Tony suggests maybe Meme was originally one of the people of Durin. Ooh. So that Meme is in exile who comes, who's already crossed the mountain into a strange new land. So that's why, like, nobody, nobody wants meme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lincoln, I think we do want, the Balrog might be a surprise, but it's going to, again, remember all of this stuff. It's going to be the, this is one of the great payoffs, right? When we get to the Lord of the Rings story, um, Think of the impact of these things. So when Legolas says, it's a Balrog, it it, it was a Balrog of Morgoth, right? In The Lord of the Rings, for people who have never read anything but The Lord of the Rings, that that sentence is almost meaningless, right? Um, To explain... To explain what a Balrog is by calling it a Balrog of Morgoth is to just bring up a name which means even less than Balrog does. No one's... Who's who's heard of Morgoth? Who's he? Right? Um... Uh, again, I mean, if you haven't read the Silmarillion, how are you going to know what Balrog of Morgoth even means? But of course, to Silm film viewers, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna, it's gonna mean something indeed, right? So, um, it, it, we're not going to be able to pass up have, giving it that kind of weight. All right, well, we'll worry about meme more later on. Um, okay, all right. So, do we compromise? So. Azahal and his his the dude in Nogrod who needs a dwarvish name, um, they can be they can be the, the fathers and so therefore long lived. So I can get my dramatic arc of Azahal meeting Thingol and then dying at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Right? Okay, that is awesome. Uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 excited. Uh, Okay. Oh, Hakan, you think we should get to the plot of the episode? Okay. All right. Fine. Okay. So, the first meeting. Suggestions from the discussion boards, as always. Nobody dies, but the elves are wondering who are these ugly short people? Are they evil? Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. Their ugliness, they should be really uncertain, right? They should be really concerned about them. Especially, remember, they've just met orcs, right? So they just met these strange and unlovely people who turned out to be savage and awful, right? And, you know, and Beleg, like, barely escapes with his life. So, um, when they meet the dwarves, do we want to go as far as having them attack the elves? Right? Like, if Mablung, I mean, Mablung should at least threaten them, 
right? I mean, he's got to at least be wondering if these are the... Because he's never seen orcs. He's heard about them. Uh, there aren't enough orcs around for him to have met any yet, I wouldn't think. Um, so Beleg has met them and he told them about them, but he hasn't seen them for himself, so he sees these dwarves. He's got to be thinking, like, hey, maybe these are those... Uh, those, you know, irch that uh, uh, that Beleg told me about. So she, so he would threaten them, but they would talk, and then he would discover that they spoke Cinderin, and that's what would make him drop his weapon, you know, lower his weapon, right? His spear. Mablung should have a spear. Can Mablung have a spear? I want Mablung to have a spear. I mean, he's, that, that seems like the kind of thing that he would have, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, you want him to have an axe? He can have an axe, too. But I want him to have a spear. We're not going to get any cool spears until Gilgalad, but, uh, but uh, you know, Tour is going to have an awesome axe. Uh, okay. All right. Both. All right. We can compromise on that, Hakon. That's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tony, do the dwarves have accents? Yeah, I'm thinking... Scottish accents. No, just, just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, no. Let's not have the dwarves have Scottish accents. That's kind of pretty much the main thing that I would ask. Um, uh, I don't think we have to give them an accent. I mean, not like a, a recognizable terrestrial accent, modern accent. Um, Remember that their language is uh, is a Semitic language. It's based on, you know, it's modeled after Semitic languages. So if they had any accent, it would be like a Middle Eastern kind of accent. Um, but, yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, okay, so... So what do you think? Should they meet the dwarves peaceably? Should the, I, I, I'm interested in the idea of the dwarves already being engaged in a fight against the orcs. I would think that if Mablung just... And, I, and, and by the way, I'm, I, I love the idea of Mablung being out scouting. That seems like a Mablung kind of thing. And for, so for him to be, you know, Beleg to be the first encounter of the orcs and Mablung encountering the dwarves, I like it. So... If Mablung just meets up with a party of dwarves, I'm thinking he mistakes them from orcs uh, and barely avoids tragic consequences, but I'm thinking he's not going to be very trusting. So we could do that. We could do the, like, I don't really trust you. Maybe you're really orcs and I don't really know. <clears throat> Why do you speak Cinderin anyway? Uh, you know, I'm uncertain about this. And then they are like, well, who is this dude who's threatening us and we're offended by that or whatever. We could do that. If the dwarves are actually fighting orcs, then he would see them. It would in, it would set up the ally thing a little more directly, right? So he would come in. Maybe Mablung could come in and and help them defeat the orcs, right? Because he would seeing the two of them together. I think that Mablung would have no doubt as to which are the orcs and which are not orcs, right? So he would come and he would help the strange-looking, uh, you know, short bearded guys against the. Um, against the orcs, um, whom at least Beleg has described to him, so he would be able to tell which is which. Um, so that has them fighting on the same side. It has, you know, 
suggests the like, hey, look, allies in battle. And also it'd be like, dude, armor. Look at these guys, armor and weapons. This this looks frankly handy. Um, so there's definitely something to be said for introducing the dwarves as a, you know, a, a military presence, like a fighting ally from the beginning there. Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree, Hakan, we should have A.O. be the first to encounter the dwarves, but I like the idea of setting that up first and having, having you know, showing um, uh, uh, showing um, A.O. like, learning lessons, but not show that it was, that it's the dwarves who do that yet. Um, Yeah, Zach, Zachary, that's a really interesting idea. So here's the other suggestion is to have Mablung meeting the dwarves and have there be some tension and, you know, like the brandishing of weapons, but no combat. And then orcs come in so that they end up fighting together against the orcs. Um, that would certainly, the shape of that kind of encounter, Zachary, would certainly emphasize the whole we are allies of convenience fighting against a common enemy situation so that would um you know is that too direct a way of suggesting that maybe it is but i mean it certainly it certainly conveys the message clearly yeah i don't have a strong feeling about this uh, you know leave this to the outliners to decide how you want to handle that but but the idea of mablung being sent out now what about melian does melian have any uh, a, a couple of you were asking about this um does melian have any uh, Oh, yeah, Lincoln, I like the fact that yeah, Lincoln is pointing out how this foreshadows the Battle of Five Armies, right? Elves and dwarves about to come to blows until the catastrophic arrival of a, of a goblin army to unite them against it. Um, if we actually do a, a little mini parallel sort of distant foreshadowing, that'd be actually kind of fun. You're right. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Um, uh, Melian. A a couple of people were asking about Melian. Does Melian have some kind of... uh, So she would be the one who suggests sending out Meblung? Um, She... How much knowledge of the dwarves would she have through Alley and Yuvana? How much would she reveal about it? Because, see, I'm thinking Melian doesn't always say everything that she thinks, you know? I mean, I'm thinking that she doesn't... Her role as queen there, you know, in Doriath is not to be like, okay, let me give you all the inside skinny of what went on and what everybody talked about back in Valinor. I don't think that that's the way that she would be, right? Um, uh... Yeah, exactly, Tony. I think that she would help people discover things for themselves rather than just rather than just telling everybody. It makes that makes more sense to me. It seems to fit better. Okay. Um she could have at least a kind of premonition, right? I would think that where her prior knowledge would come in 
is not, hey, so um, I know about the dwarves. They're around here. Go find them, right? It wouldn't be like that. She would be able to tell them. So, like, when Mablung came back and was like, I met these things. I don't even know what they are. She would be like, ah, these must be, you know, the dwarves. Um, so she, she could know about them and help to explain them after the fact, right? Um, even though she would say, like, but I warn you, you know, they are strange and their hearts are not as the hearts of our people or whatever, you know, something of that kind. Um, um, yeah. But maybe she has some kind of premonition that, like, so Belega's just come back saying there are these orc things. Right, and this looks bad. And Melian could say to Thingol, uh, you know, my heart forebodes that a time of evil is coming to Doriath, and that, you know, these orcs are but the first of, you know, many, that, you know, it's going to get bad. And Thingol could then say, then we will need help in battle, but how does he know that there is any help? Of course he knows that there's help. Because there's the other elves. There's the rest of his people. Remember, he's Elway. He's the original king of all the Teleri, right? And he was with them when Lenway left behind. What if he is sending Mablung on a journey to go across the mountains and find uh, the Nandor to seek their help, right? Yeah, so... That's Thingol's decision. So Thingol's like, go seek Lenway and the Nandor and get their aid. And then he meets the dwarves along the way. So his his mission to Lenway is kind of aborted, right? Because he meets the dwarves first and then he's like, whoa, okay, this is a big deal. Uh, I need to go back to Thingol right away and we can talk about that. So they get a little distracted um, and then the green elves show up anyway, right? So the green elves sort of show up, you catastrophe without being asked for. But you've got to think that's going to be Thingol's impulse, right? He's already in communication with Kyrdin, so he knows there are two other groups of, of Teleri around, right? There's, there's Kyrdin at the Havens with whom he's in communication, and there's Lenway and the Nandor who are way further out. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. So, so he would send Mablung after... Uh, that's, that works. That works for me. If you guys like that, that works for me. Um, and... Uh, um, and you know, then Melian can say something cryptic about you know to Mablung, like you know your, you know something along the lines of like you know your journey will not you know you you will not achieve your quest, but you will do, you know like something something cryptic about like how things aren't going to turn out the way that he expects his how his journey is going to be successful, but not in the way he expects it to be or something you know something some some nice you know sort of gnomic Melian like statement uh, along those lines. Um, And yes, Marie, by doing that, we do set up the fact like, hey, don't forget, there are other elves over there so that when they show up uh, uh, soon, they're not going to they're not going to show they're not going to be coming out of nowhere. And we we will be reminded of their existence. Um, Yes. Oh, and Marie, the dwarves would absolutely know of 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 the Nandor. They absolutely would. Because they're, yeah, they're traveling all over Eriador, so they can get, that would be one of the things that Thingol would ask, right? He'd be like, hey, how's Lenway, right? Have you seen my kin over there? And the dwarves would, uh, uh, would, would, would respond. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, stuff on the petty dwarves. Let's save this for next time, though, because we're out of time. So let me just go straight to questions for next time. So, 
<clears throat> what actually happens in the next episode? So uh, the subject of the next episode is the building of Menegroth. So we've established the uh, we've established the alliance with the dwarves, right? Um, we didn't really quite get as far in our plotting here, did we? But we're pretty close. We I think we've 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 pretty much gotten there. But anyway, so so we have the establishment of Menegroth, which means we need to introduce the petty dwarves and we need to kick uh, meme or similar out of. Um, uh, out of uh, of of uh, Menegroth, so that'll be fine. Um, but what else happens? I mean, if we, I was looking back at our outline of episodes, and there's not that much. There's like Menegroth is built, and Bulldog is sent south. That's pretty much all we have for this episode. So, what what is that? I mean. I think we need a little more action. You know, we need like what exactly is the story content of this episode? We need we need events to occur. So, uh, I, I just wanted to kind of prompt some more kind of brainstorming about um, about action in this uh, in this in this episode. We need to make sure that we keep that we touch base with Kierden. Um I don't think we're going to have time for Kierden in this uh, in episode four that we were just talking about. But we definitely need to get to him in episode five. Um, uh, and that seems a perfect time to do it because we've got the pearl thing. Remember, we'll talk about the pearls next week. Um, but uh, we do need to make sure that we are bringing Kierden the shipwright prominent and his people prominently in, so that when they come under attack, and Kierden is going to remember, we're going to have a whole subplot thread of Kierden sailing up the coast and finding the burned ships and all that stuff. So we need to we need to make sure that we touch base with Kierden, and in this next episode. Um, seems to be a, seems to be a logical place to do it in um, bulldog going south so what happens um, first of all like how does bulldog distinguish himself I mean, like, so what does it mean you send bulldog south so um, do, do we get a battle are, are we gonna actually get combat are we gonna get you know hordes of orcs coming down and the first skirmishes uh, with the elves and the dwarves um, do we not do that yet? What is Bulldog up to? How do we show him acting? You know, what does it mean for Bull? Again, Bulldog sent south is is what we have in our outline. So, what does that what does that actually translate to? Um, and uh, and then my question: Do we want to check in on the Noldor? Um, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to do that, but again, certainly if we're wanting a way to get a little more story substance into this episode, that would be a way to do it. Um, it might be too soon to check in on the Noldor. We might still want to leave the Noldor just traveling north. Um, but uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as a question. Are you guys interested in doing that um, briefly, just to kind of check in and show, here's the people of Fingolfin trudging along the shore and kind of being miserable, though nothing like as miserable as they'll be later. Um uh, or, or whatever. Okay, so those are my questions for next time, and don't forget, next time is next week, one week from today, November 10th. November 10th uh, is uh, uh, when that's going to be. Um, so I look forward to talking to you guys next week, um, <clears throat> and then we'll have our little break for uh, travels, my travels, and uh, Trisha's travels, and uh, Thanksgiving. Um Okay, cool. Um, Very good. And yes, Hakan, I will look into that. Thank you. Um, All right. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. And I look forward to uh, continuing our discussion very soon, next week. 
Uh, So, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.